Hello, and welcome to a Waypoint Church podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to it. Good morning, Waypoint. It's so good to uh, be with you again. I've lost count now of how many times I've been here, but it's always good to come, so thank you for having me. Well, over the last uh, four weeks or so, you guys have been on a journey, haven't you? Uh, Four weeks thinking about what it looks like to be what the Apostle Paul described in Scripture as being set apart. It's one of Paul's favorite themes And you can be sure if a theme is repeated in Scripture, it's because God wants you uh, to hear about it over and over again. Uh, If you've got a long memory, you'll remember way back to the 16th of April, uh, your flight took off as uh, Jim unpacked Romans chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul, who writes the letter of Romans, describes a problem. Uh, You'll remember it. It's the doo-doo verse. Do you remember it? Uh, Verse 7, sorry, chapter 7, verse 15. The good I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, I do do. I do do. The doo-doo verse. And uh, that's where your series took off. It took off with doo-doo, defining the problem, which is sin and our sinful natures. That rebellious bit within us, the bit that fights within us. Jim, thanks for a great takeoff uh, four weeks ago. The sound is really odd, isn't it? Is it weird for you as it is weird for me? Shall I try this microphone? Will that help at all? Who knows? We'll battle on. Well, you've spent uh, three weeks in mid-flight. I don't think there's been too much turbulence along the way. Hey, perfectly timed. As Richard and then James and then Haley have opened up these various verses of Romans chapter 8 for you. Now, Romans chapter 7 describes the problem. Romans chapter 8 describes the solution to that problem. Isn't it good news that God identifies a problem, but he also does something about that problem, the problem of sin? He doesn't just identify the problem, but he does something about the problem. That's our gods. And, you know, I really wish that my kids would take the same approach when it comes to the dishwasher. Uh, Dad, the dishwasher's full of clean stuff, then empty it. Anyone else have that problem in their house? God has seen that the dishwasher is full of clean stuff, and he's emptied it. My favorite verse in the whole of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news that we stand in uh, this morning. And as you've discovered over the past four weeks, guilt and shame and remorse can be utterly debilitating unless something is done about them. And of course, Satan's greatest delight would be for every single one of us to get stuck, to get chained up in that place where we are immobilized in our journey with God. But God loves you. He sent his son to die for you and he has completely forgiven you. Amen? Amen. Thank you. So if you know Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, what Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says to us is if you're feeling any condemning words towards yourself today, then those words are not from our God. His desire for you is to be free. It's to move forward in his plans and purposes. God's desire for you today is to live the unchained life. 
God's greatest desire is for you to experience freedom fully and completely. And that is exactly the message that Paul pens in Romans chapter 8 before he finishes with those incredible words in verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, no height, no uh, depth, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's greatest desire for the church in Rome, and I sense God's greatest desire for us this morning, is that they would understand the depths of how much God loves them. They knew a freedom. They knew of God, perhaps mostly intellectually, but they hadn't experienced it personally. And there was a world of difference, isn't there, between those two realities. So Romans chapter 7 describes the problem. Romans chapter 8 describes the solution. And then we're going to skip over them, chapters 9, 10, and 11, then develop these themes saying, look, this is good news for everyone. It's not just good news for the Jews, God's chosen people, but this is good news for all people. And then we get to Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12 is where our plane will land today, and it lands with Paul's so what question. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through to 2. It says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and his pleasing, perfect will. For 11 chapters of Scripture, using all sorts of really complicated theological words and doctrinal themes, Paul has been speaking about God's abundant grace in Jesus. He's been describing God's amazing story of relentless grace. That's what he's described, God's amazing story of relentless grace. Even when God's people have been expressing reluctant faith. I wonder if you can identify with that this morning. Is your faith sometimes reluctant or resistant, maybe even sometimes redundant, when it should be rejuvenated and it should be rejoicing? Would you know this morning, wherever you find yourself, that God's grace continues to chase after you and it continues to pursue you? There's a sense in which Paul's theological argument has been growing and growing ever since he wrote the first word in chapter 1 of Romans. And as he gets to the first word of chapter 12 in Romans, there's this kind of great crescendo. And the first word of chapter 12, in a sense, becomes the loudest point of his message. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 8, bit of a high point, chapters 9, 10, 11, chapter 12, therefore, Paul says, therefore, this is kind of a a musical shout, it's a crescendo, and Paul's uh, first word in chapter 12 is an attention-grabbing therefore. And you'll know with Scripture, if you see the word therefore, you have to find out what it's there for. 
Now, as all you English purists know, the word therefore is a conjunctive adverb, an essential bridge over which you must travel so that you can work out all that's about to be said in the light of all that's gone before it. And in a sense, Paul's great cry of verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12 is surrender. In the light of all that I've said already about humankind's problem in chapters 1 to 7, in the light of all that I've already said about God's faithful solution, which comes in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, therefore, chapter 12, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Therefore, surrender. Now, often when we think of the word surrender, we probably think of surrender being a, a somewhat defeatist act. It probably is conjuring up in our minds already the image of an overpowered armory, army waving a white flag in surrender, or maybe the image of a, a boxer who's battered and bloodied and uh, his coach is chucking in the towel because the fighter is just finished. But actually, that's not how Paul sees surrender here. In fact, Paul sees surrender as being quite the opposite. Paul's argument to the church in Rome is that surrender is powerful and surrender is power-filled. Surrender actually is the ultimate sign of spiritual strength and not of weakness. He says the very act of surrender is the greatest possible expression of our worship. Surrender enables you to fully worship God. Surrender continually declares that I'm done with trying to live life in my own strength. Now we know, don't we, that worship is not just singing songs within the context of an hour and a half or so on a Sunday morning. Although how often do we narrowly define that as being worship? We know that worship is so, so much more than that. You'll notice in uh, verse 1 of chapter 12 that what Paul does not say is this, worship God by rocking up at church on a Sunday and sing some songs and that will be your spiritual act of worship. In fact, God's call to worship, Paul's call to the church in Rome to worship is altogether more demanding than that. Now, don't misunderstand me uh, here this morning. I'm not for a moment suggesting that singing songs together, as we've done this morning and really enjoyed, is not an act of worship. It is, and it's an, it's an essential part of my own worship experience. I love it. But it's not the only way, and dare I say, the most important way that we offer our worship to God. God's call is much greater. It's much higher. It's much harder than that narrow definition. Worship is a 24-7 lifestyle. It's a dedication of the whole of our lives, every minute and every breath and every word and every action. I love the way that Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases Romans chapter 12, verse 1 in the message. He says this, take your everyday, your ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, your walking around life, and place it, your ordinary life, before God as an offering. That's worship. It's when we take our ordinary, everyday life and we place it before God as an act of worship, as an offering. True worship happens when we live a life of sacrifice. True worship happens when we live a lifestyle of worship. And Paul says so clearly in our text, this is what delights God the most. And in view of all that he said in chapters 1 to 11 about the problem and the solution of sin, then surely then surely surrender and sacrifice is the only right and the only proper response to such a God. 
Paul's appeal to the church is that worship is meant to be a sacrificial offering to God. What do we sacrifice? Well, everything is the answer. We, we sacrifice every aspect of our lives to God, our time, our talents, our resources, our money, our relationship, our gifts, our everything. You see, it's much harder, isn't it, than just singing some songs together on a Sunday morning. Do you know, as a church leader, there's probably one area where I have to invest more of my time in ministry than any other. And it's what I've come to call functional spiritual compartmentalization. Yeah, could you say that early on a Sunday morning? Functional spiritual compartmentalization. It's the idea that many of us have brought into, and I do it myself too, that there are spiritual bits of my life, and then there's everything else. There's the idea that God is interested in this bit, but then there's this other bit over here which he doesn't really care about. Now, you know what this looks like in your everyday life experience. When you get home today, let me encourage you to take a look at your drawers. I mean, those drawers, not these drawers. That place where you neatly categorize things and store things, your cutlery, your clothes, your staplers, your pens, and all the other stuff of life. And then there's that miscellaneous drawer. Have you got one of those where just everything goes in and it generally doesn't open? You know the drawer? It's just us that have got one of those, fine. You see, spiritual compartmentalization is when, whether we realize it or not, we've divided our lives neatly into that which is spiritual and that which is real life. We live a two-draw mentality. Real life, spiritual life. And the real life drawer is the one that we dig into frequently. It's the one that we're actually the most comfortable with. It contains all the stuff of everyday life, like our jobs and our physical health, our friends, our family, our social pursuits, our money, our possessions, our our daily routines. And the truth is that that real life draw dominates our thinking and it dominates our doing. It's where we expend most of our emotional energy and our physical energy. It's where many of our dreams will be born and sometimes it's the place where many of our dreams are dashed. And the temptation that many of us live with is the idea that God is not interested in that particular drawer, and the truth is, he is. Some of us may have even fooled ourselves into thinking that God doesn't even know my real life drawer exists. I wonder if this is making sense. I wonder whether it's describing something of your life experience as it's describing mine. And then we have this second drawer. Now, the second drawer is the spiritual life drawer. Now, in this drawer, all the God stuff goes. It's our Sunday worship. It's our Bible reading. It's our faith-based courses like Alpha or Freedom in Christ, the Bible course, whatever. It's our prayer, our tithes. It's our offerings. It's our short-term mission trips. It's our evangelistic conversations that we have with our friends and our neighbors and our extended families. You see, if you operate a, a two-draw system in your, in your life, then yes, you can still believe fully in Jesus. You can believe fully in his forgiveness. You can believe in the eternity that's to come. But the reality is probably this. Those beliefs are not having a radical impact on the way you live your life and the way you think. You see, when we live like this, our faith is undoubtedly an aspect of our life but it's not something that shapes everything about our lives. 
If we live with a true two-draw system, we won't be living the kind of life that we're called to, which is this set-apart life. I wonder whether you live your life with two draws or with one. Do you know, I wish I could say to you this morning, well, Chris Brockway's got this sorted. I've got a one-draw system. I wish I could say that with all innocence, but I can't. I have to fight this kind of uh, existence of a true two-draw existence every single day of my life because living with two draws rather than one actually is my default existence. Why is it my default existence? It's because I've got a doo-doo problem. Have you got a doo-doo problem? See a doctor. The good I don't want to do, I do do, and the bad I don't want to do, I do do. A lot of do do. But you see, the biblical narrative and the worldview of Jesus only has one draw. It's called the gospel in every day, every aspect of our lives. Everything about our lives goes in that one draw. Isn't that the heart of Paul's message to the church in Rome? Listen again to uh, the words of Romans chapter 12, again from the message. Take your everyday, your ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work, your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Paul has been busy reminding the Romans in chapters 1 to 11 that we've been brought with a price, which was the life and the death of Jesus. God has a radical, single-draw purpose for your life, and it's to offer the whole of our lives, our whole being, our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions as living sacrifices, not because we must, but willingly in response to all that we've discovered God has done for us. God's amazing story of relentless grace. That's what we're responding to. I offer my life to God in a single draw because of God's abundant grace I've discovered in Jesus. You see, when we discover just how good God's gift is to us, Paul is saying, then this kind of compartmentalized Christianity, this two-draw living, becomes impossible. But I wonder if you're wrestling with a question I'm wrestling with, but Paul, that's great to say that, but how do I actually live in that way? Because that's not my default way of living. And Paul says in response, look, it really is simple. If we surrender our lives, the whole of our lives to God as an act of worship, then we will enjoy the blessing of God's wisdom in our lives. Verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then, Paul says. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will know God's good and his perfect will. The trouble is, most Christians, if they're really honest, would have to admit that there are times when our Christian walk feels more like a crawl over a very demanding obstacle course. Does your Christian life sometimes feel like that? I know mine does. I want to make, as I draw towards a close this morning, three really quick observations. I want to speak about three obstacles, or we might call them three mindsets, that might well stop us from experiencing that blessing that might well stop us from living the the set-apart life that God is calling us to. And the first obstacle is the thought that God is just a killjoy. We might find ourselves saying something like this, I'll have to give something up if I live that way. I'll have to give something up. Now, I've got a friend who is incredibly successful in business. 
And he has the stereotypical lifestyle that goes with it. He's got a very big house. He's got an incredibly fast car. And he is constantly going on very luxurious holidays. He works hard and he plays hard. Now, this friend of mine has been on so many alpha courses that I refer to him as an alpha-holic. But at the end of every single alpha course, his response is always the same. He says something like this, I know that all I've heard is true. I know that God exists. I know that Jesus died for my sin. I know that I need a savior. But if I accept Jesus as Lord of my life and not just savior, then I'm afraid I'm going to become miserable because I'll lose all this. Now, consciously, we know that that is a, a false assumption. But subconsciously, so many of us, including many Christians, assume that by fully surrendering to Jesus, then that will mean the end of my happy life, and instead I'll end up living a life of what-ifs as I look back in the rearview mirror. I want to marry this girl, but what if God directs me to somebody else? What if God asks me to quit doing all the fun things in life and instead sends me off to some strange land to share the gospel? What if God gives me a personality transplant and I end up becoming like one of those Christians? Do you know the ones I mean? You notice I pointed over there, not there. What if God is the boss? Then I'll have no choice. I'll just become a robot under the control of God. But in Christ, these are false assumptions. At no point in Christ have we ever lost our freedom. In truth, we gain our freedom when we come to faith in Jesus. If we've lost our freedom when we've come to faith in Christ, it's because we've got a flawed understanding of God's character. That's Paul's point. He's saying if you discover God's grace and you discover who he is, then you discover life in all of its fullness. You see, unlike an earthly war where surrender really is a sign that you're just willing to give yourselves over to the enemy and live in captivity, in God's economy, when we surrender, we find freedom from captivity. False assumption number one. But there's a second obstacle or another mindset, and you might have heard people saying things like this, well, I think God's got it in for me, actually. I think God's got it in for me. Their theology reflects the, the, the words and the actions I so clearly recall from my youngest son who recently burst into the room with a water pistol in his hands and he shouted at the top of his voice, surrender and I will shoot you. I'm sorry? Let's run that by me again. Surrender and I will shoot you. Well, as it took me a moment to get my head around the confusing options he made available to me, he shot me in the face anyhow. And I wonder how many of us actually think, well, that's how God deals with me. Surrender and I will shoot you. But you know, here's the thing. As long as you remain in control of your life, you will only ever be destined to get what you can provide for your life, not what God really wants to give to you. If God loves us enough to allow his son to die in our place, how can we not believe that God's plans are far better than anything we could possibly ever dream up on our own? You'll notice at the end of verse 2 of chapter 12 of Romans, Paul does not speak of God's will being destructive and irritating and defective. He says God's will is good and it's pleasing 
and it's perfect. Our Father God knows how to give good gifts to his children. You see, when we discover that Paul is right and that God doesn't have it in for us, then we're able to surrender to him not just um, those parts that we deem not to be spiritual, but every single part of our lives. We'll be able to surrender because we know that we're receiving a better deal than we otherwise would have had. Do you know this morning that God wants to give you his very best, but in order to take hold of his very best, we need to open up our hands and be ready to receive the gifts that he loves to give to us. In order to receive, we need to let go of that stuff that we're probably clinging on to, which is second best. Someone once said this, and I think Paul in Romans 12 would agree, surrendering to God is but a channel through which God's best and greatest blessings flow towards you. Isn't that good? Surrendering to God is but a channel through which God's greatest and his best blessings flow towards you. But then there's a third and a a final obstacle or a final mindset that stops us living this set-apart life. And it's the attitude that says, but look at what I will lose. It's the look at what I will lose mentality. But here's the thing, we should never ever define surrendering by what we have to give up. We ought not look at, be, not be looking at, at what we do have, but looking at what we do not have if we fail to surrender. When we receive from God, when we surrender to God, we receive the very, very best things that life has to offer. Jesus called it the abundant life, life in all of its fullness, the set apart, the set free life, a life lived without chains. God gives us the best, but if we fail to understand his heart, we'll end up clinging on to dear life to those things that are second best, thinking that that's the best that we can possibly ever get. As I close, I'd love you to think for just a moment about what will happen to your life if you begin to fully surrender to God, if you begin to fully live a life of sacrifice, If you say this morning, do you know what, I'm done with living a two-drawer life, I'm going to live a one-drawer life, where everything goes in the one drawer, because actually God's interested in the whole, not just the parts. I wonder what that life looks like for you. I wonder if even as I'm saying some of this stuff this morning, you just think, do you know, there's one big thing at the moment. Here's this one area in my life where I'm really struggling to let God in and to, to let go. Maybe that's an addiction. Maybe that's a particular way of living that you know is not right for God, but it's so difficult to let go of. Maybe this morning you can identify with my alcoholic friend where you know the truth, where you've discovered the truth to be a capital T truth, but it's so difficult to really live in the light of that truth. What would it look like this morning for you to fully surrender to God? What would it look like for you this morning to offer your life as a sacrifice, as an act of worship to God this morning, even those things that you may be struggling with? As the worship group rejoin us, I want to share with you a prayer, and it's a prayer of relinquishment, and it's a prayer of surrender that's written by Richard Foster. It's a real challenge to two-draw living. 
And in fact, it's a prayer that says, I'm not going to live with two drawers. I'm going to live with one. It's a challenge to surrender every area of our lives. I invite you to be still. Pray this prayer over us. Maybe as we pray this prayer today, as we make our way through it, you want to just hold your hands out and close your hands. Keep your fists really tight before God this morning. Maybe your closed fist actually is a sign of how we live by default before God. You know, we can't receive the good gifts that God gives when we've got our fingers so tightly clenched. And as we pray this prayer this morning, I want to invite you now just to open up your hand as a sign before God that you're ready to receive what he has for you. A sign that you're going to cease to continue clinging on tightly to the second best things that we're able to manufacture ourselves, but instead you're going to open up your hands to receive the best thing that God has for you. And as I pray this prayer, I want to invite you this morning just to, in the quietness of your own heart and mind, just hold before God that one area perhaps where you're really struggling today and you just need to say to God, God, I need a breakthrough. I need you to do what I can't do. Do you know this morning that the grace of God is pursuing you? (laughs) And he delights to lavish it upon you. (laughs) We ought to get to that prayer. Today, Lord, I yield myself to you. Lord, may your will be my delight today. May you have perfect sway in me. Lord, may your love be the pattern of my living. I surrender to you my hopes. I surrender to you my dreams. I surrender to you my ambitions. Lord, do with them what you will, when you will, as you will. Lord, today I place into your hands, into your loving care, my family, my friends, and even my future. I release into your hands my need for control, my craving for status, my fear of obscurity. Lord, would you eradicate the evil, purify the good, and establish your kingdom here on earth and even in my life. For Jesus' name's sake.